Tonight we will finish a series called The Pessimist Guide to the Universe, a study of the book of Ecclesiastes. Not a very auspicious way to begin the new year, but here we are, and we're almost done. You see, Ecclesiastes, much like the book of Job, is for anyone who has ever asked God, why? And that's why this book feels so sad at times, as though it was written by a pessimist. King Solomon is the wisest and wealthiest man who ever lived, according to the scripture, but now he's old and he's disillusioned by life itself. So you could say he certainly qualifies as a pessimist. He has spent a lifetime buying anything he desired and trying everything he could imagine. But the problem is, after all of that, his heart is still empty. And so to describe how he feels, we've touched this every week, but it's important. He uses the Hebrew word hevel 38 times in just 12 chapters, hevel. Now the King James Version of the English Scriptures uses the word vanity, and many modern translations use the word meaningless. And those are okay, but they diminish that Hebrew metaphor just a little bit because hevel means vapor or fog or smoke. Um, He's not saying your life has no meaning, meaningless, meaningless. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the meaning of life is never quite clear. It's like fog or vapor or smoke or cloud. It's somewhat undefinable. It's a little nebulous trying to figure it all out. It's unreliable. That's the big one, I think, he's trying to say. Uh, Fog looks solid. Smoke looks solid almost to your eye, but if you wave it around, it disappears. It's unpredictable. It's uncertain. Um, It's like fog. If you're in the middle of it, you can't see clearly. That's like life sometimes. And, And it's like chasing after the wind. He uses that phrase because you can never really catch it. Uh, You just get to one stage and it changes, doesn't it? You just get to one level or one achievement and there's something else that you have to do or or something happens. And and so Solomon calls himself the preacher in verse 1 of chapter 1. And the preacher immediately begins preaching. He begins deconstructing all the ways we try to find purpose apart from God. And he says it's all vanity. It's all hevel. We spend a lifetime investing most of our time and our resources and our energy and our emotions in things that ultimately just don't last. And a hundred years from now, no one's even going to remember what we did on a certain day or a certain week. So it's kind of vanity. It's hevel. When you consider your limited time on earth, Um, it makes you feel a little sad. And so Solomon uses the phrase under the sun 29 times in 12 chapters to remind us that as the earth goes around the sun, we're just really marking time here on this planet. And then life is over. That's depressing. Ecclesiastes 9 and 11 is one of the most quoted verses out of this book. He says um, about this thing called hevel. He, he says, 
it's, it's just not clear. It's just nebulous. And, and he's trying to define how he feels about why life is like that, why life is uncertain, why life, it, it just doesn't mean something all the time. It's, it's not clear. And so here's what he comes up with. And this is one of the most quoted verses in the book, and rightly so. I returned. I considered it again. I thought about it more. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill. And here's his conclusion. This is hevel. This is vanity. But time and chance happeneth to them all. So you can run ever so fast. Doesn't mean you're always going to win the race. You can uh, build yourself up and be ever so strong. Doesn't mean you're going to win every battle. Uh, the wise aren't always going to have uh, enough. Sometimes wise people are actually poor. And uh, men of understanding sometimes don't get rich. And, and men of skill sometimes don't have the favor or the popularity. Time and chance happeneth to them all. And so the reason I think that's one of the most quoted verses in the whole book is it's Solomon saying this, finally, after nine chapters, he's like most preachers, it takes him a while to get to the point. And uh, so after nine chapters, he says, I think I've got my finger on it. Uh, this is what's so frustrating about life. This is what makes life feel like smoke and fog and vapor. And if you paid attention while we've been going through, you've seen shadows of this as well. There are three challenges with human existence. First of all, there's the march of time. Because time eventually erases everything we do. Uh, you give it enough time and somebody's going to forget what you accomplished. You give it enough time, somebody else is going to live in your house. You give it enough time, well, they're probably not going to own your car. It'll be in a junk heap somewhere. But you give it enough time, and time eventually erases us. The march of time. It never stops. And then there's the inevitability of death, that life is just going to come around, and um, everybody's going to die. The statistics are one out of one people die. And so eventually death, it's inevitable. And that feels fatalistic and sad. And then there's this one, and I think this is the, the worst of the three, the randomness of chance. That chance just kind of catches up with us. You're not expecting the accident. You're not expecting the phone call. You're not expecting the fracture in that important relationship. You're not expecting that job loss or that financial setback. And so chance, eventually, it'll be so random in your life that it will humble you. You thought you had it all together. You thought you were a spiritual giant, but chance just comes along and it changes everything. Time and chance happens to everybody, and then death. And so that's what frustrates Solomon. Life is heavy. It's smoke. It's vapor. What he's saying is we try our best, and we work our hardest, and we obey God's commandments, and we live a godly life. And if I can slip into the New Testament, we're faithful to our church, and we pray and fast, and we give and serve, and we love our spouses, and we raise our kids, and we pay our bills, and we plan for the future. And then... Time and death and chance mess everything up. And that's life. It's heavy. It's smoke and 
vapor and fog. And it happens to every single one of us, doesn't it? Every one of us. But before you throw up your hands in fear and frustration, remember to throw up your hands to God in faith and prayer and trust him because here's the ultimate point, especially when we look back at this Old Testament book from a New Testament perspective. Even when life seems totally out of control, let me assure you that God is fully and totally in control. There is nothing that has ever surprised you that has at the same time surprised him. He wrestles with no mysteries. He is large and he is in charge. And so Solomon begins chapter 11 and that's where we're going to begin tonight. He says this, cast thy bread upon the waters for thou shalt find it after many days. Give a portion to seven and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. He's talking about his merchant ships that sailed the seas and took things for, for sale in other countries. And he made great money. He's the wealthiest man who ever lived. Cast your bread, put your wares, put your uh, productivity, the products you're selling upon the seas. Let them sail the seas. Cast them upon the water. What he's really saying is, about people. He's saying, invest in people every chance you get because, first of all, investing in people always yields the greatest return. You can invest in the stock market and you may get a return or you're, you may not, but if you invest your life in people, he says, thou shalt find it. There will be a return. Uh, the, the other reason you need to invest in people is because uh, it takes time to see a return when we invest in people. You're not always going to see the results of your investment today or tomorrow or next week. But if you will invest your uh, life in people, you will find it after many days. But then thirdly, he says, thou knowest not. You, you don't know exactly how that investment's going to turn out. We never know when our chance to invest in people will be over. Uh, they'll move. They'll die. You'll die. Whatever. And so... He, he's saying, while you have a chance, spend your life for people, not for things. Spend your life to invest in people, not just to invest in yourself or in your career or in your education or in something else far less. And now he turns to the world of farming. So that's merchant ships and commerce. Now he turns to the world of farming. He says, if the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth, and if the tree fall toward the south or toward the north, in the place where the tree falleth, there shall it be. He that observeth the wind shall not sow. He that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. As thou knowest not what is the way of the spirit, nor how the bones grow in the womb of the mother that is with child, even so, in the same way, you don't know the works of God who makes everything. So, you don't know any of that. You can't plan any of that. You can't strategize enough to make all good conditions happen. So in the morning, sow thy seed. And in the evening, withhold not thine hand. You know not whether it shall prosper, either this crop or that crop, or whether they'll both be alike good. In our lives, it's just like farming. Farming is an uncertain profession. It's totally dependent upon the weather. And we can't control the weather. And your life, believe it or not, is 
really in many ways totally dependent on things that you can't control. Now, for the farmer, the, crowd, the clouds may water the ground with rain, or they may not. It may be a drought. And so then he says, well, trees, you know, trees seem to be more permanent than just crops that grow in the field. But he said, even a tree can be toppled by the wind and just rot where it lies. Every part of our lives, brothers and sisters, that involves reward also involves risk. It's a risk to invest in people, but there's great reward there. It's a risk to serve God. Well, there's great reward there. It's a risk to give. It's a risk to serve. It's a risk to love, but there's great, great reward there. Every part of our lives that involves reward also involves risks. So here's his, his bottom line. All the bad scenarios that could happen tomorrow, they don't keep the farmer from doing what he should do today. You know, you can curl up into a ball and live in your basement for the rest of your life and you're just gonna miss out on life. You can withdraw from everything that has any amount of risk and you are going to be paranoid for the rest of your days. And you're going to miss so much joy and happiness and love and life. So Solomon's saying, don't let what could happen tomorrow, don't let the risk prevent you from sowing seed today. Farmers know this. If we wait for ideal conditions, we never accomplish anything. So in the morning or in the evening, just keep working. Can I pull that into the New Testament? If a church waits for ideal conditions to launch anything that they want to launch, to reach anyone they want to reach, to pray for anything they want to pray for, if we wait for ideal conditions, we will never accomplish anything. You might as well get used to it. In this life, there will never be ideal conditions. So in the morning and in the evening, at the noonday and in the middle of the night, just keep living for God, just keep working for God. You're never gonna have ideal conditions. You remember what Paul said in the New Testament, and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season, here's another farming metaphor, in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And do you know what immediately follows that little verse that we quote so often? This verse. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men. Let's invest our lives in people, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. If anybody should know that you love them, it's your brothers and sisters in the family of God. If anybody should know that you're on their team, it's your brothers and sisters in the family of God. If anybody should know that you've got their back, Pastor Matt, it's your brothers and sisters in the family of God. So especially for those that are of the household of faith, do good to them and realize that God is gonna be the one that pays you back and raises that crop. Yes, there will be risks, but you cannot avoid all risks, so you might as well risk because in the risk, there's the greatest reward. Verse seven, truly the light is sweet and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun. It's nice to live in a nice sunny day. But if a man live many years and rejoice in them all, rejoice in every year and every week and every day, 
Yet let him remember, here he goes again, let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. All that cometh is vanity. See, he just roller coastered on us. There he goes. Many of our favorite sayings and songs and scriptures compare youth to the morning and old age to the evening. And boy, did they give me the right crowd to preach to tonight. Sorry. Because if we live long enough, brothers and sisters, elders, it does begin to grow darker. Our eyes dim, our hearing fades, our steps slow, and our strength wanes. And that's exactly why we need to consider those dark days while we still live in the sunshine. Could I pause for a moment and honor those people in our church that you've spent decades living for God? You made the right decision in the bright daylight in the morning and our church and everybody that your life touches reaps the benefits of your dedication and consecration to God throughout the day of your life. And so don't be distressed that evening is closer than the morning because you've invested your life well in the kingdom of God, and we're all the better for it. And so Solomon says, we need to consider those dark days, the evening time when we're still young, and we need to prepare for them because all that's coming, it's vanity. Life goes by so fast. It's like smoke or fog or vapor or vanity or heaven. It's here today and gone tomorrow. You turn around and spring has turned into autumn, and cribs have turned into cars, and babies have turned into brides. Children have turned into moms and dads with families of their own. If you're not careful, you can get so fixated on today that you forget about tomorrow. So engaged in your job that you forget to enjoy the journey. So preoccupied with the temporal that you fail to prepare for the eternal. That's what Solomon's trying to tell us. He says in verse 9, he's going to turn his attention to those that are still young, those that can still do something about this. He says, rejoice, O young man. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth. And let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth. And walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things, God will bring thee into judgment. We'll come back to that for in just a sec. Therefore, remove sorrow from the heart. Put away evil from thy flesh. Because it's not just the old folks. Childhood and youth are vanity. They're confusing. They fade. For the sixth and final time in this book, chapter 2, 3, 5, 8, 9, and now chapter 11, for the sixth time, Solomon says, enjoy your life. Somebody shout to your neighbor, because this is the older part, they may not hear you well. Uh, say, enjoy your life. If they didn't smile at you, you need to say it louder because their hearing aids off. Say, enjoy your life. Some of you enjoying telling them that a little too much. <laughs> Solomon says, enjoy every day you're given, especially when you're young. Live, laugh, 
love and make the people at Michael's happy when you buy that plaque. Let thine heart cheer thee because you have no assurance that tomorrow is going to be better than today. And you also have no assurance that tomorrow will even arrive. So he says to young people, follow your heart, follow your dreams, follow your passions. No, he's not talking about sinful things because he says right there, God will bring thee into judgment. So you remember, follow your heart, follow your dreams, follow your passions in the godly sense of that word. He's just talking about enjoy your life every day that you have. Enjoy your life while you can. And it would serve us all well to, quote, remove sorrow. And it would do us all well, quote, put away evil every day. Because childhood and youth and middle age and in our senior years, they're like smoke and fog and vapor and vanity and hevel. So enjoy your life and enjoy your youth. Youth is the season of firsts. First car, first date, almost said first marriage. Uh, it's the season of firsts. Jet lag. It's the season of first. Don't make me lose it. It's the season of first that create lifetime memories. Or those firsts can create lifetime regrets. And for all of us older folks, remember that God expects young people to act like young people. Don't get mad and get an attitude because young people are acting like young people. You were young once. It's just enough centuries ago that you don't remember what it was like. Let young people enjoy life. Their humor is different than yours, especially today. Oh, my goodness. Um, let them enjoy life. Let young people be young people. It's normal for young people to act like young people. They don't have a lot of experience. Their brain isn't fully formed until they're in their mid-20s, and that's what's wrong with most of them. Um, just let them be. Just, just enjoy watching them be young and kind of naive. God expects young people to act like young people. That's normal. Here's what's not normal. Old people trying to act like young people. That's what's not normal. Would you stop? I do have jet lag because the expression putting lipstick on a pig just ran through my head and I don't even think that relates. Don't try to dress it up. Act your age. And enjoy your stage of life. Uh, there are wonderful benefits that come with every stage of life. So there are so many great principles in Ecclesiastes, and they're everywhere in this book. They're wonderful. But sadly, here's the sad thing about Ecclesiastes. is what's, What makes this book kind of sad? King Solomon had to learn all of these good principles the hard way. He wasted his wealth. And he squandered his wisdom trying to find fulfillment. But all the things that he thought would bring him joy only led to despair and emptiness. Hevel, smoke, fog, vapor. He discovered something. Sin always over-promises and under-delivers every single time. So Solomon calls himself the preacher. 
Well, the preacher is a man of unprecedented power and influence. He has unusual wealth and wisdom. He has unparalleled accomplishments and experience. And because everything he has experienced has ultimately just made him feel more empty, Solomon has now become the ultimate pessimist. And his fatalistic attitude infects the entire book from start to end. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's chapter 1, verse 2. We're now in the, entering into the last chapter, chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 8 says, guess what? Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. All is vanity. Those are some of the most honest, most famous, and most painful words in history. Life is fog, smoke, vapor, vanity, hevel. 38 times in 12 chapters. But we haven't talked about it much. There's another repeated phrase in this book that sheds a little bit of light on the hevel we experience in life. And that phrase is under the sun. That phrase occurs 29 times in 12 chapters. And don't miss it because that's really the key to Ecclesiastes. Yes, life is empty, it's vanity, it's smoke and vapor and fog if you only look at it from an earthly perspective. <laughs> That's the deal. If you leave God and eternity out of the equation, then sure, life is hevel. It's sad, it's pessimistic, it's unclear and uncontrollable and unfair and unkind and a lot of times unhappy. But see, Solomon is describing a life without God. Yes, that kind of life is ultimately vanity. It is empty in light of the march of time, the inevitability of death, and the randomness of chance. But the good news hidden under the surface in this book is there's another kind of life you can live. You can give your life to God and then your life will overcome time, overthrow death, and overwhelm random chance because you've got a God in the center of your life. See, Paul said it in 1 Corinthians, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If it only is something we go to church and talk about religion and try to have a little bit of a positive attitude. We're of all men most miserable. If this life under the sun was all that there is, it would be miserable even for Christians if this is all there is. But there's another life beyond the sun, brothers and sisters, and that is our hope. And so he begins his last chapter. He didn't have chapters, but this is the way they divided it up. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun or the light or the moon or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain. Chapter 12 is Solomon's final conclusion. It's the bottom line from the wisest and wealthiest man who ever lived. It's the passionate sermon 
from the preacher who was king in Jerusalem. It is the heartfelt plea from the best known backslider in the Bible. Here's what he says. Don't do what I did. I do not want to show of hands in this room right now. But there are some people that had a little bit of a sojourn in sin. A little vacation from God sitting right here among us. And every single one of them looking back over that period of time would say to you tonight, don't do what I did. Don't waste your one and only life. Start serving God when you are young and never, ever, ever quit. Don't wait, Solomon says, until the years take their toll on your body and sin takes its toll on your spirit. Don't do that. Start early. Never give up. Never quit. Solomon says, don't do what I did. Yes, did I have a lot of fun? Yeah, but don't do what I did. It was wasted time. And I got to the end of my life and it was all emptiness. Don't do what I did. And that begs the question, but preacher, pastor, I've already wasted so much of my life. Is there anything I can do? Is Solomon only talking to young people up in the morning hours? They haven't come near the midlife or old age. Is he only talking to them? Is there anything I can do? I've wasted so many years. There's an ancient Chinese proverb that says, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is today. The financial planners have taken that, Proverbs, that proverb and said, the best time to invest your money is 20 years ago. The second best time is today. But I'd like to say, in the words of Scripture, the best time to start serving God is 20 or 40 or 60 years ago. But hear me, the second best time is today. Today is the day of salvation. Don't weep over wasted days or weeks or months or years. Jump in with both feet and both hands, all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And today, just give God your best. I promise you, eternity will be worth it and your reward will be great. Now this next little passage, this couldn't be preached in youth service. In the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble and the strong men shall bow themselves and the grinders cease because they are few and those that look out of the windows be darkened and the doors shall be shut in the streets when the sound of the grinding is low. And he shall rise up at the voice of the bird, and all the daughters of music shall be brought low. Also, when they shall be afraid of that which is high, and fear shall be in the way, and the almond tree shall flourish, and the grasshopper shall be a burden, and desire shall fail, because man goeth to his long home, and the mourners go about the streets, or ever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. Now that's a little confusing, isn't it? But not really. Those verses give us one of the most vivid descriptions of old age and death found anywhere in literature. Solomon just described a house <laughs> that is falling apart. And you'll never guess what that metaphor is. You are the house. 
Your aging human body is the house that is starting to fall apart. And that's a biblical concept because our bodies are compared to a temporary dwelling place in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's why we identify with this picture. We understand it. And I've got to tell you, it's a little bit comical in places. Solomon says, um, there's a day coming when the keepers of the house shall tremble. Your arms and your legs will tremble and your hands will start to shake. And the strong men shall bow themselves. That's your back and your shoulders. They start to stoop. And the grinders cease because they are few. You lose your appetite and sometimes your teeth. <laughs> Told you you couldn't preach this in youth service. Those that look out of the windows be darkened. Your eyesight starts to dim. The doors shall be shut in the streets when the sound of the grinding is low. You're going to have trouble hearing and distinguishing sounds. Eh? Beverly and I are at that wonderful stage of marriage. It'll be 40 years that we've been married just later this year in June. We're at that wonderful stage of marriage when you can start an argument with one word from either side. What? 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 You can holler it from upstairs, downstairs, laundry room, kitchen, office. It's wonderful. You can start a rip-roaring fight with one word. It's amazing. The doors are going to be shut in the streets. <laughs> when the sound of the grinding is low, you're going to have trouble hearing things. He shall rise up at the voice of the bird. You won't sleep soundly and you'll probably wake up early. All the daughters of music shall be brought low. Your voice will begin to quiver and weaken. They shall be afraid of that which is high. You're going to constantly be afraid of falling. Some of you aren't smiling anymore. Conviction's settling in. Fears shall be in the way. You'll get anxious about many, many things. Oh, here's one. The almond tree shall flourish. Your hair will turn white. Just like an almond tree. Or it'll turn loose. The grasshopper shall be a burden. It'll hurt to even just pick up the lightest little thing. Everything becomes an effort. And desire shall fail. Your get up and go just got up and went. About time we sang a chorus of we're a happy people. Yes, we are. So why does all that happen, Solomon? Well, it's because man goeth to his long home and the mourners go about the streets. It's just a fact of life that the older you get, the closer you get to your long home, your eternal rest. And the closer your friends and family get to planning your funeral, the mourners, that's just life. Verse 6 describes a lamp hanging from a chain. And when the silver chain breaks, the golden lamp falls and is shattered. The fragile cord of life is snapped and the light goes out. The same verse describes a pitcher of water being drawn from a well by a rope attached to a wheel. But if that wheel breaks, the pitcher drops and is smashed so no more water can be drawn. And in the same way, when the machinery of life stops working, the water of life stops flowing. The heart stops pumping, the blood stops circulating, 
the brain stops functioning, and death has come. Say, Pastor Raymond, that's morbid. No, that's reality. That's just life here under the sun. I've read this verse at many, many gravesides. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Aren't you grateful that while this body decays and turns to dust in a graveyard, your spirit doesn't stay there. Your spirit returns to God who gave it. I've quoted that verse at so many dozens of gravesides because at death your body begins to decay and eventually it turns to dust. But death is not the end for the child of God. At the moment of your death, your spirit returns to God who gave it, awaiting the resurrection when you will join the saints of all the ages. So yeah, I've read that verse at dozens of gravesides, but I've read this verse at the same gravesides. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? See, that's what you get when you're not just living under the sun. You've got a life above the sun. You've got a life in eternity beyond the sun. Hmm, my goodness. But see, Solomon, he's Old Testament. So he struggles with that. He doesn't have the writings of Paul. He doesn't have the teachings of Jesus. He doesn't have the book of Revelation. But we do. So you need to make sure you've got a hope beyond the grave. Solomon bounces right back down the roller coaster and he says, vanity of vanity, say of the preacher, all is vanity. That's thankfully the last time he'll say that in this book because I'm getting tired of it. And he carries on in verse 9. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many Proverbs. Well, we know he did. We've got a book in the Bible to prove that Solomon did that, called the book of Proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads. They're like a, a cattle prod and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies which are given from one shepherd. Solomon spent a lifetime collecting wise proverbs, doing his best to find convincing words to present convicting truth. I got to tell you, he didn't always live up to what he wrote, but even his bad experiences give us the opportunity to learn from his mistakes so we can have blessed lives. He compares these wise principles from God, the one shepherd. He compares them to goads, cattle prods, and nails. Wise principles from the Bible prod us to live right, but they are also something firm like a well-driven nail that we can fasten our lives to. That's what the Word of God is to me. The Word of God, I open it sometimes and it's so convicting and, and it prods me, it pushes me, it makes me repent, it makes me pray, it makes me think, God, I've got to do better. But there are other times in my life when 
The word of God is like that well-driven nail. It's something I can hang my life on when life turns upside down. It's something I can hang my hope on when it seems it's in a dark valley or a dark night. It's a goad and it's a nail. Aren't you glad you've got the word of God to anchor your life to? That's why we come to Bible study. We're anchoring our lives to the word of God. Solomon also warns us You be careful, and I think this is more appropriate in our generation than ever before. You be careful about looking outside of God's principles. See, he knows to say that because he did that. He looked outside of God's principles, outside of God's covenant, outside of God's commandments. And he tells us in the last chapter of this book, you be careful about looking outside of God's principles because worldly wisdom isn't always wise. So he says, don't you test God's truth by men's books. You test men's books by God's truth. You say, did he say that? Oh yeah, he did. Verse 12. And further, by these, my son, be admonished. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Don't you test God's word by the opinion of some secular author who decides they're going to take a cheap shot at your faith. You test their book by this book, by God's word. This is the anchor. This is the shore-driven, well-driven nail. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. You make sure you're anchored to the word of God. So as we come in for a landing tonight, and I thank you for hanging in for this series Ecclesiastes could certainly be perceived as a depressing, pessimistic book. Because, let's be honest, it talks so much about the march of time and the inevitability of death and the randomness of chance. Solomon even says, you remember this, I think it's chapter 3, it's better to go to a funeral than to the house of feasting. It's like, well, yeah, this feels like a funeral, Solomon. But see, Ecclesiastes still, despite all of that, what we see as negativity, it still resonates with us. Because this book, it's an odd book, but this book resonates with our spirit because this is the story of a man who spent so much of his time and energy and resources trying to find happiness. But he ended up feeling like he had somehow missed the most important things in his life. Don't miss the most important things in your life while you're doing the busy things in your life. And that's why Solomon vividly has described in 12 chapters now, he has vividly described that all too human experience of just feeling dissatisfied with life. You can put on your religious face now. You don't have to even bat an eye You can fake that you've never thought this. But this is a pretty universal human feeling. There must be something more than this. Even Christians feel that sometimes. If they're having a trial, a bad day, a dark night, a rough experience, there must be something more 
than this. See, Ecclesiastes, the reason it's in your Bible, it gives us the unvarnished truth. Life is hevel. Vapor, vanity, fog, smoke. It's unclear. It's unfair. It's sometimes unhappy. And you know why? It's because it always comes to an end. That's why it feels so sad. Life is like a balloon that you blow up. And you fill it with time and energy and resources. And if you watch someone's life from the outside... It seems like it's expanding. It seems like they're growing. It seems like they're achieving. It seems like people are impressed if you watch it from the outside. But inside, it's only vapor inside. And time or death or chance is the pin that eventually pops that balloon. Many people think well, I'm just dissatisfied because I haven't achieved enough or I haven't, I haven't owned enough. I don't have enough money or popularity or pleasure. I haven't arrived yet. That's why I'm dissatisfied. So do you know what they do? It happens every day in all of your neighborhoods and all of your workplaces every day. People double down on money-making and pleasure-seeking and everything else. And you know what they're doing? <sighs> They're just trying to make that balloon bigger. They keep blowing more and more air into the balloon thinking it will help. They don't realize just how futile and foolish it is to only live their lives for vapor, only live their lives for things under the sun. So bottom line, Ecclesiastes teaches us life is vain Life is empty. Life is just hevel if death is the end. Because we can't stop the march of time and we can't avoid the inevitability of death and we can't prevent the randomness of chance. Even if we are Christians. Because Christians do not have a solution to any of that. We do not have a solution. There is no Christian you've ever met who can stop the march of time. There is no Christian you've ever met who can stop the inevitability of death. There is no Christian, no matter how gifted or powerful in the spirit, there is no Christian that can stop the, the randomness of chance from coming into their lives. Even Christians don't have a solution to time, death, and chance. We do not have a solution. But we do have a Savior. And if Christ be not raised, Paul said, your faith is vain. It's empty. It's, it's hevel. It's vapor. And you're yet in your sins. It was all just imaginary. And then they which also are fallen asleep and we preached their funeral and we said nice things and we cried tears and, and we buried them and said our goodbyes and it was so hard and, and, and if Jesus was never raised then those that are falling asleep in Christ they've actually perished we're never going to see them again if Jesus didn't raise and that's when he said those verses those words that we read earlier if in this life only we have hope in Christ we're of all men most miserable how miserable would it be to think that everything that our hope is anchored to 
is an illusion. It's fake. It's fiction. But then Paul said, but now we know for a fact, we know for sure, Christ is risen from the dead. And not only that, he has become the first fruits of them that slept. Because he rose from the grave, one day all of us are going to rise from the grave. Because he overcame hell, we can overcome hell. Because he went away to prepare a place, we're going to get to live forever in that place. And heaven is far superior to this. So when you think about it in that light it's not so bad that death comes to everybody because we're going to something far greater than this chapter 12 is Solomon's final conclusion it is the bottom line from the wisest and wealthiest man who ever lived it is the passionate sermon from the preacher in Jerusalem it is the heartfelt plea don't do what I did from the best-known backslider in the Bible. And here are his very last words to all of us. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Here's what you need to do, brothers and sisters. Fear God and keep his commandments. Somebody say, fear God and keep his commandments. Solomon said, that's the whole duty of man. You do that, you got it licked. You do that, you're doing great. You do that, you're going to make heaven your home. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Death is the one event that ends this life for all of us. And after death, Hebrews 9.27 says, after death there is a judgment. So God is going to judge every human being who ever lived. So you better be sure that you fear God and keep his commandments. That's pretty simple, brothers and sisters. That's it. That's all. Fear does not mean paralyzed by terror. Fear means you reverence and respect and honor God. That's what fearing God means. Fear God means that you don't just kind of waste your life trying to fake everybody out, pretending you're religious, but you have a daily relationship with the Lord Jesus. You fear God. You honor him and respect him and live for him and keep his commandments. See, a lot of people don't like the commandments of God. They don't like the word of God because there's rules in there. There's commandments in there. The Bible even uses the word law to describe itself, and they don't like that. But for Christians, it's like being married. You know, we, we, we are married to our beloved. Valentine's Day was yesterday. We're married to our beloved. Some people would look at that as a kind of bondage. You mean you can't just take off and do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want? No. I'm in covenant with somebody. And you might think it's bondage, but it's not bondage from the inside. It's not bondage when you love that person with all of your heart. And it's not bondage to serve the Lord Jesus. Somebody else might look at it and say, oh, you're in bondage. You have to go to church and you have to pray and you have to do all of that. And you, you, Really, you're in bondage. No, it's not bondage from the inside. It's love from the inside. Fear God and just keep his commandments. It's really quite simple. Because... He is the lover of my soul, and I love him back. Would you lift up your hands right now in the sanctuary? 
and express your love to the Lord Jesus. Express your worship to him for a moment. I thank you, God. I thank you, God. I pray tonight, Jesus, for someone who is struggling with some of these very issues that Solomon wrote about. They're struggling, feeling sad. They're struggling, feeling like it's kind of useless. They're struggling in a season when it feels empty. They're struggling in a dark valley. They're struggling in a difficult place. God, I pray that you'd put something in them, a fire in their spirit that this life is not all I'm living for. So if it's hard right now, I'm gonna overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of my testimony, I'm gonna overcome because this is not all there is. I pray you'd put that in somebody's spirit tonight. I pray they'd go home with a different determination that they can look at the tough times and the dark days and the hard nights. I pray that you'd put something in their spirit that fortifies them and strengthens them. We do love you, Jesus. We fear you, not terrified of you but in awe and in adoration and with great reverence for you. You're the one who saved us. You're the one who redeemed us. And we love you for it. Forever, we love you for it. Would you put a PS on that prayer and would you just let a crescendo of worship rise up in this sanctuary tonight? It's worth it. It's worth it living for God. It's worth it living for God. Huh. Would you stand to your feet and just lift up your hands and let your voice ascend higher than your hands and just give God a great resounding praise at the end of Bible study tonight? Huh. It's not the first mile that's so important. It's the last mile. I'm going to make it all the way. I can't say the road's been easy, but it's been worth it all. I thank you, Jesus. I worship you, God. I worship you, Jesus. Would you reach over to somebody near you, next to you, behind you, beside you, in front of you, we have no idea in any given service who's walking through something that's tragic or difficult. Before we go, could we just take a moment, we're early tonight, and just pray for that person. You don't even need to know their name. You certainly don't even need to know their need. But would you lift up your voice and just pray a prayer of blessing over them? That's, that's all you need to do. Just pray a prayer of blessing. You might need to step across an aisle if you see somebody and, and you feel to pray for them. Just please do that. Oh God, strengthen your people tonight, God. Strengthen your people tonight, God. Strengthen your people tonight, God. I worship you, God. I worship you, God. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Feel like the Lord would like to do something really special for somebody here tonight. Just push for just a second in prayer church just I know it's Bible study but just push for just a minute
so powerful and beautiful and meaningful what's going on right now. Just give God a couple of minutes to work in someone's heart, would you? He can do more in those two minutes than we could do in the next two weeks. So just let him work. Just let him work. He works through our prayer. He works through our worship. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. It is always worth it, always worth it to fear God and keep his commandments. That is the whole duty of man. I promise you that when the march of time or the inevitability of death or the randomness of chance catch up with you, you will want to have a great church, God's people, to pray for you and to be there for you. It's so beautiful and so powerful. I have confidence in God and I have confidence in you. Let's do this well for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of eternity.